Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb, and we have a very, very special episode dedicated to Sealed this week. If y'all do not care about Sealed, kind of like me, then take solace in the fact that earlier this week we already did an episode on the BNR list and that their, that impact on the constructed formats. So bonus episode this week for all of y'all. Two episodes, one week, breaking through the quarantine malaise to get back to some of our old ways and produce a little bit of extra content for our lovely fans. Love to see us getting back on that horse, but uh, I would say don't get used to it. I think is that that's a fair statement, Jerry? Yes. Okay. I would I would love to make more content, but I would I would need to clone myself. I think if I were able to, you know, consistently do that and not lose my mind. Yeah, I don't think I need to clone myself. I just really need to better myself. I need to be a more functional human being before I start making content again. But taking steps in that direction, for sure, things seem to uh, be getting better. So everyone keep up all your good work. Stay safe, stay healthy, keep getting better, and play some Sealed this weekend on Magic Arena. Yeah, bettering myself would be getting out of isolation, Mm-hmm. And that's likely not happening anytime soon. So no, no, making steps though. That's all we can do. Keep keep chugging along. Yep. Anyway, uh, arena open this weekend. The technical stuff is it starts at February twentieth, six a.m. Pacific time. Entry fee is twenty two thousand five hundred gold or forty five hundred gems. My rough math equated this to about like. 28 USD, depending on like what package you happen to buy or whatever. So as far as sealed tournament entry fees go, it's not the worst thing in the world. No, pretty typical. I I don't see it as all that exploitative. Obviously, like in the real world, were you to play a sealed tournament, you'd have some cards that you could then sell or trade or do whatever you want with. And now you just kind of load up your arena account. So I think like you still have to be somewhat invested in the arena ecosystem to get the maximum potential value out of this and not have all these cards already, which uh, I, I think I am running into that wall now where I already own everything. So I'm just getting gems. I don't own everything, but it's close. It is really depressing to like open your rares for the sealed deck and see like, oh, you get 40 gems. And it's like, damn it. <laughs> yes. Very disappointing. But I, I am okay with what is being offered here. And, you know, Hard cash payout on the back end where you'd have a successful weekend. Always nice to get a little cash in these these times. So, yeah, it's a solid event overall. True. Uh, also, you can play best of one or best of three. Uh, best of one, you need to get seven wins to qualify for day two. Best of three is four wins. Uh, I guess, so for best of one, you get 2,000 gems. Uh, so not even your entry feedback, which is... Kind of a tilt. And then for best of three, if you get four wins, you get 5,000 gems. Yeah. Uh, You also get 5,000 gems if you get three wins. So some results that result in you getting your money back, even if you don't necessarily qualify. As far as which one of these to play, where are you leaning, Jerry? Which of these is more appealing to you? I don't know if there's like a hard value read I want to make where I'm saying you should be doing one of these over the other. The flexibility of like having an, an extra loss to give to just nonsense is good, but like best of three mitigates some of that a little bit. Sideboarding access is important, especially where you think like there's a sealed skill gap. And we're going to talk more about sideboarding and sealed as we move on through. So I, I see ups and downs to both of these formats, honestly. 
Yeah, I do too. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would prefer to like open my pool and then choose, you know, but I, I don't mm. think we have that luxury. No, but I don't think so. I think that if you are a particularly skilled, sealed player, best of three is in your best interest if you have the time for it. Okay. I, I am leaning towards best of three possible, you know, a shot in both is what I end up doing, but I'll, I'll just play it by ear because I think both have ups and downs. Yeah. And then uh, day two is, you know, trying to get to seven wins. If you get to five wins, you get 20,000 gems. Obviously, there are like, you know, rewards for one win, two win, three wins, et cetera. Uh, so five wins is 20,000 gems. And all five, six, and seven give you an invitation to the Strixhaven qualifier weekend. So no need to grind ladder necessarily. Six wins is $1,000. Seven wins is $2,000. So yeah, I mean, like you get invites to these PTQs, maybe you can double or triple up on your entry fee, maybe actually win some cash and you get to play sealed to do it. So I know that there's a lot of people that are excited to do this and certainly a lot of people who have played arena, but maybe aren't super into the constructed aspect of things and are now able to dip their toes into like the organized play portion of it without needing to actually invest in constructed. So that's cool too. Yeah, I'm happy for those people getting their first taste of tournament magic as it was. I hope that describes some of the people who are listening today and we can set them up for success in their first efforts to get a little bit of that OP cash into their pocket. It is nice getting the old Hasbro check, let me tell you. Yeah, it's been a minute since I received a Hasbro check, but I I have fond memories of doing so. It feels good to see. What's the name of the the thing they use now? The e-wallet. The e-wallet, yeah, to see your e-wallet fill up. It's always a good feeling. Dude, it was so weird winning a Pro Tour and then just having them like wire me $50,000 or whatever. Yeah, remember how long you used to have to wait for those checks to come in too? Like it would be months and months you were waiting on payouts from Hasbro. And then the instant turnaround on the e-wallet was really a big upgrade. Yeah, I got paid for the PT like the Tuesday or Wednesday after it happened or whatever. And then it just like had $50,000 sitting in an account. It's just so strange to me. Can't complain about that. Nah, uh, been been a while since that has happened, let me tell you. Anyway, for sealed generalities, I think it is important to go over this first because there is definitely a stigma surrounding sealed where it's like, well, my opponent opened three bomb rares and I opened one or zero, therefore I did not have a chance. And while certainly that gives some folks uh, a leg up on the competition, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like you get to, you know, peel uh Starnheim unleashed or like something super powerful like that to just turn the game around. And your, your best thing is like maybe like a, a five, five for four mana or something. You got some, you got some work cut out for you. Absolutely. But there is so much more that goes into it. And You know, people don't really get into like the nitty gritty of it because a lot of this stuff does tend to change format to format. So it's like there'll be a sealed PTQ season for Innistrad and like how many people is that actually relevant to and how much content are they willing to consume on it and, and things like that. So normally there's just not a lot of sealed content that gets made because a lot of it gets old very fast. But uh, I think that there are some generalities that do carry over your, carry over pretty well from format to format. Drop them on me. I want to hear about them. One of them you brought up on social media this week, and it was 
the notion of play versus draw. For a long time, sealed was the you draw first format, ideally, and draft was the play first format. And certainly, like early 2000s, you know, you'd play in these sealed PTQs and your opponent would choose to play first and you would just mentally pump the fist because you knew you already won. Yep. No, and, it, it was it was a huge demarcation between people who understood sealed and people who were just playing magic in the sealed format. Right. And nowadays, it's kind of funny, like you can make the case for drawing first, but there was just this period, I, I don't remember exactly when, but it was like, you know, going to all the limited Grand Prix, right? And I would play against these folks playing sealed and the the script was flipped. Like my opponent would choose to play first and I'd be like, okay, are they a buffoon or a threat? I don't know, you know, but, but uh, maybe like a year after that, everyone was choosing to play because that is what the formats dictated. Like the cards were powerful enough and there were more playable. So you were able to build like a very cohesive, uh, aggressive deck a lot of the time and playing first was actually just better. The problem was sealed back in the day was that like all the cards were so bad, there wasn't a lot of card advantage and your mana was often very bad because you'd have to stretch into a third color, even mm-hmm. though there's no good fixing just to get your power level up a little bit. So you would want to draw first. And with modern day sets, that's just not the case. Like playing first matters as much in sealed a lot of the time as it does in constructed. And obviously there are going to be uh, outliers to that where, yeah, you know, your your deck is, uh, f- you know, four copies of a one-mana removal spell in a bunch of card drawing or something. And in that case, you don't really get a benefit from going first. But the vast majority of the time, you want to be playing first. There are no absolutes in Magic. So when I say it's laughable to draw these days, it, it's not really. That's being hyperbolic. And there are circumstances I could put together. And even in uh, call time, there are probably sealed decks I could come across where I would choose to draw first. But it being the default isn't even close to correct anymore. And I, it hasn't been for a long time. And it, it's just a simple question of, are the games about trading resources one for one? And I think what a lot of people will point to is, and this is a response I got a bunch when I put this on Twitter, was, well, these games go long. Okay, but that's that's not what this is about. It's, it's not about the length of the game. It's about games where you are running out of resources and things to do, and so is your opponent. So the difference in choosing to draw is you have one more resource than they do, and that's what breaks things open. And you look at how many resources are baked into call time cards to say nothing of the fact that there's just like very good common card advantage spells all over the place. Two for ones, cards that snowball really hard, things that are capable of just generating tremendous amounts of resources. The whole theory behind I would ever want to draw just breaks down so quickly. And it's very, very easy, on the other hand, to put together games where you going first changes the entire nature of how the game plays out. It puts your opponent on the back foot immediately. It allows you to leverage your resources better and cuts them off from the potential of getting to the point where you can let these more powerful things come online. So while it's very easy to lose a game because you're on the draw, I, I think it's very difficult to win a game because you're on the draw. And that's the big break point for me these days. I'm going to put it a different way. Please do. The game's go long in a lot of instances because you played first and therefore were able to be ahead of your opponent on mana, which meant that 
you were not getting beaten down in the early turns to the point where like, you know, they drew a burn spell or a pump spell mm. or whatever to finish you off. Like the game is probably going long because you were able to stabilize because you were on the play, right? Sure. So think think about that. And certainly like while while you're practicing, don't don't just take our word for it. But like when you're actually practicing for this event and playing the games, think about how the games are playing out and what is causing the games to be won or lost. Like would I have would I have lost this game if I chose to draw first? And and things like that. And also like the, the card advantage spells are numerous. You have things like Behold the Multiverse at Common, which maybe it's not necessarily a great example because you get to split the mana up over several turns or whatever. But there are definitely formats where like a four mana card draw is a little bit too slow, especially when you're on the draw because you don't have time to cast it, right? So like Behold the Multiverse is like pretty easy to cast, but it's still a lot easier to cast at your leisure when you're on the play and you have that luxury of being like a little bit more stable and having a higher life total and like, oh, okay, I can actually take this turn off to cast this card drawing spell to make sure that I find like my six land for my six drop or something like that, right? And okay, the games go long. I, I will concede that like even if you're on the draw, maybe you've noted that, okay, if I'm on the draw, I'm going to need to have a certain amount of like two drops or cheaper interaction to interact with my opponents, slow them down, make sure I have answers to flyers, all that stuff. Just make sure that you don't get beaten down. You've successfully done that. You're able to live when you're on the draw. That still doesn't necessarily mean that you should draw first uh, because if you're building your deck like that, yes, the games are going to go long, but like, like you noted, Brian, it's really difficult to actually run out of resources. So it's not like the games are going long and it comes down to top decking. And I think that that's the key part that people need to pay attention to. Yes, the games go till turn 10, turn 12 a lot of the time, but are the games being decided on who gets that last extra resource? Because before, again, like uh, Paper Boomer here, right? Like early 2000s, it was like, wow, you drew a 3-3 on turn 12 and like that's that's game defining because both players are just so spent on resources. Yep. And that's not the case anymore. It just isn't. Like yes, you can be up a bunch of resources, but if they're not the resources that actually matter, then it's not going to necessarily help you translate into a game win. But back in the day, going first having an extra resource whatever it was was way more impactful than it is today. Yeah, no question. And the other thing you could kind of do is just like track some of the better commons in this set and think about how much more function they have on the play versus draw. Like Frostbite starts pushing through damage as opposed to being purely defensive and can still function in that role. And and Bergstrider is now the KO punch as opposed to just, okay, this will stabilize me for a turn so I can get back on board. I think it just comes up over and over in call time that I would rather be the person asking the questions and putting my opponent in the vice as soon as possible. And every single time your opponent has to make a suboptimal decision to preserve life total, you're winning. And like, this is something that carries over from my poker days. And this is like very outdated poker theory. So don't, don't take much in terms of if you're trying to get poker advice, but like one of the early tenets of like Skolansky's theory of poker, which was a very foundational work in poker was that every time your opponent does something that they wouldn't have done had they known what the cards were that they didn't have access to, you were winning. So you you just want to basically uh, get them to play a, not in favor of their odds. And then you're always going to end up ahead in the long term. And 
that's refutable in a lot of ways based on present theory, but it's always stuck with me. Think about just accumulating advantages in every spot you can and how it will shape your long game plans. And I think play versus draw is just a huge illustration of that principle. Yeah, I guess, you know, to, to that point, that was basically why we were we were pumping our fists mentally whenever people chose to play back in the day was because that was such a core tenet of sealed was that you were supposed to draw first. And if they didn't have that basic knowledge, then it meant that they were likely going to do a bunch of other things suboptimally. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, you were, you're definitely right about that. Is, is there a reason this is kind of off topic, but like, is there a reason why that like, is that a thing that specifically does not hold up in poker anymore? Or is it, they're just better prevailing theories? I will, I will just tell you that poker theory has advanced to such a dramatic degree that I don't feel comfortable even speaking on it. I I, like it's check it's checkers versus chess compared to when I was playing poker for a living versus what the people know now. Yeah. And I, I don't know enough about it to say, yes, this still holds 100%. Like it seems like that should still hold to me, but the theory has gotten so advanced that I don't even make assumptions like that. Yeah. I, I mean, that just, it seems like a, a fundamental theory type of thing that is just good and generally true. Whereas the, the micro of your decision-making does not necessarily like even take that into consideration, but it's like probably situations that you're creating have to do with that. Right. Yeah. I I wish I could speak more authoritatively on it. And when I tried to like, this was probably three or four years ago, I tried to get back into the theory just because I was sick of feeling like an idiot all the time. And it had come so far that I'm like, I need probably years of catch up work to even understand the level these people are on at this point. And I just kind of lost interest. It's a new language, basically. Yep. Anyway, look forward to our our poker cast in like the year 2040 or something. Oh, God, no. Please don't let me go back to that. (laughs) No, just one episode, like the sealed episode. Uh, Maybe. I feel like I feel about this poker episode the way you feel about the sealed episode, I think, where it would just be absolutely dragging me, kicking and screaming to the table. Cool. Uh, Anything else you want to say on play versus draw? No, I've I've said my part on it. I, I do have a strong opinion that you should be playing in this set. But either you're going to come along with me at this point or you're not. And I just encourage you to explore and think about it while you're playing your games. I, I guess we should note that there, obviously there are exceptions to every rule. There mm-hmm. is no, you know, hard and fast way that you should be doing things. It is mostly just a product of the way that sets are designed and the way this format is specifically designed where play ends up being better a large portion of the time. So in the dark, I would play first. But obviously there are things like specific matchups and the composition of your opponent's deck and maybe how you sideboard it and stuff like that, where maybe you choose to play for game one and you lose and you choose to draw first for game two, you know, could see that that's completely reasonable. I think especially after sideboarding, that's the spot where I would pay close attention for opportunities to do so, but don't, (laughs) the problem is if you, if you put this on the table, you could trick yourself with fancy play syndrome. So I, I just encourage you to be careful when you're making this assessment. If you choose to play first in this sealed format, you can only be so wrong. That's a good way of putting it. The The chances that you're wrong are like maybe 10%. I think so. I think so. So even, even if in the dark you choose to play all your games, all your matches, don't even think about it, uh, you're still right a, prob- a large portion of the time over the course of a tournament. So yeah. don't beat yourself up about it. If, if you want to spend your mental space somewhere else, like – practicing deck building and looking at card evaluation and stuff, it's probably better spent trying to figure out the minutiae of that. Good advice. Anyway, sideboarding. This this was my big thing. This was 
the thing that I had up my sleeve for uh, a lot of the the sealed tournaments that I played in, and mm-hmm. I, I already you know bragged about my PT win or whatever. Let's let's brag about some sealed GP top eights. I have way more limited Grand Prix top eights than I do constructed top eights. That doesn't surprise me at all. I, like I said, when I, I think of sealed, I think of you as a very strong sealed player. See, yeah, a lot of people don't know that, though. So they're like, oh, you have, I don't know, 10 or 12, some amount of Grand Prix top eights, right? And the, I think the the assumption is that, like, they're all constructed or whatever. And it's like, nah, this, the sealed ones were the, the easy ones for me. Constructed were the ones where I would, like, trick myself into playing bad decks. Just sure. Because of, like, hubris and stupidity and, you know, being on level eight when I needed to be on level two. So I, I did like pretty poorly in a lot of constructed GPs, but the sealed ones were different where I sit down, you give me a pool. I work from those constraints and I don't do the dumb stuff. Like I, I so like Luis comes to mind, right? Where it's like you let him draft and he's going to draft like these stupid hex plate golem decks. Right. Mm. But when you give him a sealed deck, he just keeps it tight and he's like, all right, pack, pack rat, Mizzy mortars. How do I build like the actual best shell in this? And he's not going to be like, well, let's splash divination and hexplate golem or whatever. It's like he and I, he and I never did that. Like if you give us sealed decks, we're going to, we're going to have way better uh, results in sealed deck than we would if, if you let us like construct our own deck in a lot of instances. So it's, it's kind of funny to me, but I definitely was able to, use a lot of the stuff that I learned playing and tuning standard decks into sealed where it wasn't so much like in constructed, you play gruel against fairies and like, okay, these cards are bad. These cards are good. Keep my game plan the same, whatever it was. No, like figuring out the different ways in which the, the gruel deck loses the matchup and what it looks like when they win and constructing a sideboard plan out of that. And especially like if you can construct a sideboard plan that kind of like blanks how they're sideboarding, then you just get to shift the paradigm so dramatically that you're such a huge favorite after sideboarding. And like basically what happened was for this example, like rogues would load up on spot removal, right? Because you're playing against this gruel aggro deck. And then gruel is like, no, actually if I like cut my brush fire elementals, play a bunch of escape cards and a bunch of spot removal, you can never beat me. Yep. And that was a thing where it was just like, oh, damn. You know, that is not take out bad cards, put in good ones. That is like fundamentally changing what matters in the matchup. And Rogues basically has no counterplay to it. And that was the type of stuff that I did in Sealed where I was able to evaluate what my opponent's deck is trying to do, how they're trying to do it too, because it's like maybe they have the tools to you know, like put pressure on me and beat me down. But instead they're, they want to play this more uh, passive game plan where they're like trading off their creatures and using their removal spells defensively and stuff like that. And then figuring out a way for my pool to be able to sideboard, to beat what they're bringing to the table. And usually that involves making the assumption that my opponent is not going to do anything tricky. Also, sometimes that's not true, but I think for the most part, it's kind of like the play draw thing. It's like you're going to be right 90% of the time, maybe even higher in this instance. So it is very much for me about looking at your pool and what your pool is capable of and then going from there. And then after you see what your opponent's pool is trying to do, figure out a way to maximize your pool against theirs. So 
I would not try and do all this on the fly because you only have like three minutes to sideboard or whatever. And I spent a lot of time in between rounds, like basically laying out different options for my sealed pool where it's like, okay, you know, if I'm, I'm a beatdown deck, but if I come up against something that has like two sweepers or whatever, how am I going to be able to shift my deck to counteract that? Right. And just seeing ways that you could actually change paradigms in those matchups. I have no notes. I agree entirely. What I do have is two questions for you to kind of further push this. I think you did a really good job of explaining why and how sideboarding is so important and sealed. The first question is, do you believe that you can adjust things to that degree in the current environment of magic? Because for a lot of the reasons that play draw has changed, I think your ability to completely shut out your opponent's plan has diminished somewhat. That's not to say this isn't important, not to say you shouldn't be doing it. I just think whereas you you said it was easy at times to just completely invalidate what your opponent is doing, I don't think you can go as far these days, is my yes. instinct. Yeah, okay. So I, I agree with you, and it's possible I misspoke there. I, I think what I was trying to do was speak to like the Gruel versus Rogues thing, yep. where, where that did completely invalidate them. In, in the case of Sealed, it's mostly like, how do I take this 30% matchup to like a 60% matchup? Yes. And I don't, yeah, I don't think that there's anything that you can dramatically do a lot of the time to just like completely invalidate someone there. There are, there have been some instances of that where it's like, I'm this beatdown deck. My opponent has like a very, very good control deck. They have removal. They have card drawing. They have life gain. They have like these big bodies. They have big, you know, like flying finishers that I can't kill. And like that sort of matchup is, is just kind of a nightmare if, if your card pool isn't particularly good right and then i was able to side into like a better control deck it's like i have a bunch of counter spells and card drawing and something that gives me inevitability to the point where it's like oh their five five flyer just doesn't matter i can just kill all their stuff and run them out of cards like i i've done stuff like that before but yeah those- th- there's angles to do weird things like that like i i definitely have sideboarded in a bunch of demolishes before and attacked people's mana bases which is not something that like you want to do in many sealed games. And when I say I've done it, I think I've done it like once and had it been correct and probably once and had it been really wrong and a stupid thing to do. But those type of weird options are available to you if you're really thinking about, okay, here's my nightmare matchup. How can I possibly get out of this scenario? Yeah, exactly. So the bright side is, is that the cards are all very, very powerful now. And when you look at a sealed pool, you probably have more options for deck construction then you probably give yourself credit for and you probably have more game plans that you can try and employ like if if you need to get really aggressive or you need to get like super hard focused on card advantage or whatever like you might have the tools to do that that doesn't happen all the time certainly there were some sealed pools where i just presented basically the same 40 every time because i didn't really have options there was a deck in like a a shards block grand prix where if i had off color cyclers i would have played them because Mm. i had like my last three cards were so bad that i wish that they just cycled towards my better cards rather than being what they were but it was like i i didn't have the option to do that and that meant that i certainly didn't have options for sideboarding you'll you'll come across that occasionally and it's just like all right shrug the the rest of my stuff just doesn't matter yeah your your motto in sealed should always be like focus on what you can can actually control and always be thinking about that. One more question I wanted to ask. What percentage of sealed GPs would you say you had 
a second deck built and ready to go? Because for me, I would say it was probably like 30%, maybe 35% where I had two options. And often it wasn't necessarily that I had close options. It was just, I wanted to be prepared for a scenario like what you're describing and having like, okay, I can actually just play this completely different deck. Should I run into this thing? And a lot of times when I built the second deck, I wouldn't touch it throughout the day. And it just, the situation would never come up, but over and over it served me very well to always have this plan built out ahead of time. And I want to point this out because you're the master of your time in this arena open. You could take as much time with your sealed pool as you need. Whereas we were working with some pretty defined timelines when we were building for GPs. Here, yeah. build all the decks you want. Like Just work through it forever and figure out all these different configurations you can come to. Yeah, I mean, if you actually have the time to do that, right? Because we're talking about like, oh, should you play best of one or best of three? Time considerations definitely factor into that. But yeah, I guess... For me, if I was just going to sit down all day and like devote time to this, like I would spend multiple hours on my deck build, assuming that I actually had options. But in the case that you're talking about where you had a second deck ready to go and rarely used it, it's like, well, you started the deck that you started for a reason. And it's because you thought that it would be better in the majority of cases, right? right? So sometimes sometimes you just, you spend all that time, you come up with these plans and it just never comes to fruition because you play against like, Boros five of your seven rounds or something, right? And like, that's kind of what you expected to do. And that's why you built your main deck the way you did and stuff like that. So the answer for me is a lot. And there are some formats that I guess like this one is actually pretty similar where a lot of the times you're, you're like main color, secondary color, maybe you have tertiary color, but like you're definitely operating with like a bunch of splashes and stuff like that. And you're mm-hmm. trying to cram as much power level into your deck as possible, which means that you probably don't have like an actual second deck ready to go. But there were a lot of like core set Grand Prix, for example, where I would definitely have my main color and I would have a second color ready to go, depending on what my my opponent had and what what problems I had. Yeah, core set's a great example of where that came up over and over. Yeah, so I would be like green-white, but like in, in half my matches, I would shuffle in like the eight swamps and eight black cards or whatever, take out the white cards, and and then, yeah, maybe it was like, well, I was playing first in game one, now I'm drawing first, stuff like that. Like that happened regularly. And then obviously there were some Grand Prix that I played in where didn't really have that option, and it was mostly just like I had a plummet and a disenchant, and I could just throw the rest of my sideboard away, and it just wouldn't matter. Yeah, I, I've certainly played both sides. And I, I just wanted to hit on that because I think it's important. You know, certainly a lot of our listeners are very enfranchised players and have been through all this before and and know this and know these type of setups. But there's a lot of people who are going to be playing their first SEAL tournament this weekend. And I want to make sure they're considering these possibilities. It's something that seems obvious to us maybe, but maybe they didn't really think they could sit down and have two decks ready to go. It, it's 100% something you should be considering. Yeah, even if it's a thing where like, you sit down and you're like, ooh, maybe Boros looks kind of good. And you like kind of look at it a little bit and you're like, well, there's only like 18 cards that I really want to play. Let's try the Simic deck. And then that one has like 24 cards or something. So you cut a card and you're ready to go. And you also decide that like the Simic deck looks better for a lot of reasons. You know, maybe it's power level, it's curve considerations. You have answers to specific problems, you know, that you're going to be facing. And you just kind of write off the Boros thing at that point because Simic is better for a lot of reasons. But realistically, you should probably flesh out that other deck, too, if you have the time, Uh, at least if you think that the two decks do something different. So like the Boros deck is like 
a little bit scrappy and you have to add in some filler to get to 23 or 24 playables. But like there are definitely going to be matchups where, you know, maybe your Simic deck really struggles against uh, actual aggressive decks. And like the Boros deck is like better in the mirror or something. Well, in that case, it's, it is worth it to figure out like how you would want to build that sort of deck if that scenario arises. And a lot of this really makes the assumption that you have a lot of information about the format and how the games are going to play out and what the decks look like and stuff like that. And in the case of someone who maybe is playing sealed for the first time or like their 10th time this weekend, maybe you don't have that knowledge base to draw on and that's fine. And maybe you are just better off submitting like your Simic deck every single time, even if it's, you know, a few percentage points worse than your other deck. That's entirely possible. But I think that no matter what, you're you're going to have some time to experiment a little bit and it would still benefit you to like maybe build out the Boros deck to kind of see how your your opponents are going to be building their decks too, you know, like what these sure. decks are kind of capable point. of and stuff like that. And if you find yourself like kind of late in the tournament and, you know, you've played against Boros a couple of times with your Simic deck and you lost, well, maybe now is, is a time to try the Boros deck, even if you don't have a huge confidence level for how it's going to perform. It's like, well, the, the last time you did, the last few times you did this, it didn't work. Try something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be open to the possibilities. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's, that's the main thing is that a lot of people who play sealed are like, well, I built my deck. This is my deck. These are my two to five sideboard cards and that's it. And it's like, you really lose out on a ton of percentage points by closing yourself off to the rest of the possibilities. And there's a lot of reasons to do that. I mean, it just, it doesn't occupy your mental space and you just don't have to think about it or you don't have the knowledge to draw on. So any further experimentation you do could actually just be minus EV rather than plus EV. You know, so there's, there's a lot of reasons why you might just be like, Nope, this is the deck I registered. So that's what I'm going to stick with. And that's cool. But like, if you look at your pool and you're like, wow, I have like, you know, a Simic deck, a Rakdos deck, a Boros deck, mess around with it. Like definitely see what each of the decks look like. And if if you have the time, you know, you could post on Twitter, ask your friends. I'm sure like a lot of people are just in discords at this point. And it's like, all right, I could build one of these three decks. Like, does anyone have any suggestions? And maybe someone will be like, well, most of the sealed decks in this format are like these four color snow suit decks. And this Rakdos deck has a lot of things going for it that would make it good against that. Whereas like your snow deck is probably going to lose to the other snow deck. So like, maybe don't do that. Right. And just getting other people's opinions in on the matter could be the way to go about things too. Oh yeah. I mean, that was a huge part of seal GPs, right? Between rounds. It was, if you love magic theory and just like talking about building magic decks, sealed GPs were kind of unprecedented because it was just a constant exchange of ideas and people sharing their experiences and, you you always saw the good seal players being very active between rounds. It wasn't like hang out outside the convention center, do nonsense. It was sit down with your seal deck, talk about this idea with someone who you respect, talk about this idea with someone else, uh, give your input to your friends. It was a, a constant process of evolution throughout the day. Yeah, I really didn't like you know people whether I knew them or not coming up and saying like how should I have built my deck, and then I would go through and like say some stuff maybe ask them some questions, but they would have like non-committal answers. And then they would just be like, okay, how you said is how I'm going to do it from now on. But when someone you knew 
had like a really keen mind for this stuff and would come up and talk to you about things. And you got to sit down and like debate the finer points of it. I loved that. Yeah. And that was so much fun for me. That's what I love doing. And uh, that's, that's how I met Luis Salvato actually was, I, I think talking over sealed decks, you know? And, and then he, then he betrayed you by beating you in a PT final. Yeah, but he paid me on the split that we had too. So. Okay, uh, he's, no, no he, real betrayal there. Still, still a good dude in my mind, you know. Okay, but yeah, it's it's like oh, you know, random person. Yeah, I'll give you a shot, you know. But then we're like going back and forth on these ideas, and I'm just like, okay, yeah, like this this dude can hang, and he's got a lot of good ideas, and I would not have built my deck the way that he built his, but he had the rationale behind it to justify it, and we get to ha- sit there and have that discussion, and like talk about our experiences like playing the games and playing the formats we get to learn from each other and that that sort of stuff is just it's catnip for me man i love it agreed 100 percent. all right second part of generalities or third part rather is the risk reward in deck building which is still something that i i don't think i have really mastered and it it kind of goes into like what we were talking about before as far as like looking at the pool, comparing a couple different decks, and it's like, well, this one has a lot of power level, but maybe lacks two drops or lacks ways to be flyers or has bad mana or whatever. And then there's like the very consistent beatdown deck, but like you don't have a lot of great tricks or a good finisher. You don't have like an overrun type of thing or like a big dragon, any sort of bombs, and trying to figure out which one actually gives you the most equity for any given sealed tournament. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think about this concept more as it relates to individual card choice than it does broader, like, should I play this deck or this deck? Like, when I think of risk-reward scenarios, I'm often thinking, okay, splashing for this card really puts a strain on my mana base. I need a lot of things to go right for this to come up. But the reality is I just can't be a deck with flyers unless I have this card somewhere in my 40. And so I'm willing to take the risk of this difficult splash and make it happen or doing something out of left field, like a double splash, you know, where you're you're looking for two pips of a color. So you have like three lands and really shooting for the moon to get that coma or something into your deck. It's about assessing the power level of your options accurately Dude, and for, the, then, for, for the record i don't care what it takes i would splash coma every time there you go and <laughs> but like I, I could find an exception to that i guarantee like i could put together a good enough deck where you're like okay i actually don't have to do this in this scenario there's a bunch of scenarios where you should be doing it 100 if i had like three on color comas in the other color combination then maybe but Right, right, yeah. right. Anyway, you get what I'm saying, though. I do, like there, I do. There's, there's a point, and for some cards, it's a, a very easy point to reach where you say, I'm willing to take the chance to get this card in. And every point, every card falls somewhere on that scale. How big of a risk am I willing to take to insert this card into my deck? And I think, in general, because the power level of so many cards is so high in this set, you should take a lot of risk here. I think you need to play your good cards. I think you need to be aggressive about it. But more broadly speaking, it's always a needle that flows back and forth. How safe can I afford to be? How risky can I afford to be? And it's contingent on the power level and the general synergies and strategies inherent in your pool that you're offered. So how do you how do you make that distinction as far as like, you know, when the risk is worth it 
versus just like kind of playing it safe or whatever. Yeah. So (laughs) I think when I want to answer any question with instinct, it means I just don't have a good answer. Like there's something more specific I should be saying, but I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know exactly what to point through point to here. It's just me looking at my pool saying I, Drawing on my experience in the format, saying I believe this pool is this good, it could beat this percentage of decks. In order for me to get this result, I think that's a big important part of the equation too. It's like, what am I trying to achieve here? Do I have to win every match? Do I have matches to give? Am I looking for a 7-2? Did I have three buys at this GP? So I only need to squeak out uh, a 4-2 or a, what is it? 4-2? Four, 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 wow, it's been a long time since I played a GP. I only need to squeak out a 4-2 to be able to make day two. A lot of different questions you have to ask as to what you're trying to achieve. And I think all of that has to influence your decision. But I, I don't have like a really hard set of metrics to point people to, unfortunately. So Paulo's heuristic was always you should play the deck that has the better overall win percentage. At least, you know, this this was in regards to like constructed GPs. You know, maybe there, there are people that would make the argument like, oh, I want to play this this deck because it has really polarizing matchups and maybe I just get my 80, 20 matchups all day or whatever. And he was like, no, nah, just play the deck that has like the 55% win rate and that will yield better results. And I'm not sure that that is true, especially in sealed because sometimes you play against decks that have a wide disparity in power level. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you stick to like, you're kind of like middle of the road, slightly aggro deck, but like nothing too special. Like, you're, you're going to win anywhere from 45 to 50% of your matches or 45 to 55% of your matches. Right. But it's like, it's really hard to get like that seven, one record, which is like a pile of commons and uncommons, you know, like sealed in a lot of instances, you really have to be doing something spectacular because in a lot of instances you are playing against opponents who are doing that, those sorts of things. So I think especially now, in a, a format like like Kaldheim, where like the mana fixing is pretty good, like you, you get to take a little bit more of a risk, and like even if you have this card that's uncastable in your hand for a few turns, it's not the end of the world because mm. in theory you have other stuff going on. But yeah, re- realistically, the question is like risk reward. How do you decide that? It's 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 a trap. It's really stupid. I I kind of set you up, and I'm sorry about that. But like, if you ask me like a specific thing where it's like. Should I play two forests in my blue black deck to splash coma? Be like I have these these two other fixers. Like, does my deck need it? That's a thing where that's a specific question where I'd be able to say, okay, risk reward is thus I can answer that. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like you mentioned, Paulo's theory and baseline. Sure, I think it's a great theory, but the impossibility of that calculation is so great that it renders it almost moot, right? Like you you do not know what your win percentage is against the field when you're looking at a sealed deck. And you're just trying to make different determinations of that. And if you could answer that authoritatively, then maybe that is correct to just always default to that. But you can't. So there's got to be something else you're considering in that scenario. And is it supposed to be consistency? Is it supposed to be raw power level? I... I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that question authoritatively. And it's like, like probably that's the essence of it. It's that it's imprecise. There is no answer. So you just have to find metrics that work for you and have experience and draw from that. I think it's pretty common, especially for those who are familiar with the format, to look at a sealed pool and be like, okay, this is 
a, a six out of 10 or a 7.5 or whatever. And like that number, even though it's, it's kind of like your top five list type of stuff, right? It's just, it's made up. It's nonsensical. It doesn't actually help anyone, but like it does kind of help gauge whether or not you should be a little bit more risk adverse or not. Because if your sealed deck is a nine out of 10, however arbitrary that is, it's like, well, then maybe you don't need to gum up the works a little bit more by engaging in risky behavior. Mm. You sure. know what I mean? But like, yeah, if, yeah. if you look at your sealed deck and you're like, man, this is a four out of 10, like I got a double splash that coma or whatever. It's like, yeah, probably you're probably right. Cause you're probably not going to do a lot of winning without something like that. Yeah. That's always driving the decision-making process and your point to responding to specific things is easy. Responding to broad rules is very challenging. I think in a lot of instances uh, for this format specifically, you're going to have the tools to play one way or the other, you know, like maybe you're going to have a decent beatdown deck or you're going to have like this weirdo snow deck or giants or whatever. Like you're going to have something that allows you to play and at least be competitive and, Every deck, I think, is going to have problems. Like if if you end up having like perfect mana, perfect removal, perfect end game, you have answers to like all the weird sideways things that your opponent can be doing. Like good on you. You have a 10 out of 10. Like hope you don't mulligan a bunch, whatever. But a lot of the time you are going to have the tools to compete and you're going to be able to like make those decisions a little bit easier. You know, if if you actually want to sit down and like look at them and, and think about the format where it's like, all right, you know, this... This snow deck is a little weak to this beatdown deck, so I should play like this, uh, this O six or this two three or whatever to help me a little bit against them. Even though it's like a pretty dead draw in mirror matches or like a weak top deck stuff like that, you're gonna be able to you're you're gonna be able to make those risk reward decisions a lot better uh, once you actually get to look at your pool. So, you know, again, phone a friend that works. Yeah, love the idea of, uh, especially in our community, be collaborative about this. There, there's no, th- that's not incorrect. It's not unfair. It's it's just how this process works. So make sure you're checking in with knowledgeable people on this. Yeah. And uh, a, a big part of like the sideboarding stuff and the risk reward stuff that I think that I was very good at and what gave me an edge in sealed. Like I, I think I, you know, day two or like eight ones, whatever, a lot of, Grand Prix with pools that people would say were like sixes out of tens, you know, and a lot of it came down to just like knowing what my deck was capable of and knowing what my pool was capable of and preemptively constructing like what I was going to do in those scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially like when, when you're sideboarding too, like ultimately that's kind of what sideboarding comes down to is like knowing what your deck is capable of and what your opponent's deck is capable of. And you're just like, I'm really weak to flyers and my opponent has a couple good flyers. Maybe they don't have like 10 flyers, but they have a couple good ones. And it's like, it's worth boarding in that plummet because this is a weakness I have. So just be thinking about things and framing them like that. And especially in like the risk reward, like last cut, last edition, do I splash this color type of stuff, be framing things like that. And I think it'll be easier to make those decisions. Mm, Yeah. I think a list of your strengths and weaknesses could go a long way. Yeah. when you're making these decisions. And if you if you need some frameworks or some uh, tools to employ, I just a simple strength-weakness chart makes a lot of sense to me as a way to get started with sealed deck building. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Sometimes just like putting it on paper helps a lot. Yep. Man, this cast is long, but now we're going to talk about the format specifically. Okay. 
Uh, well, I, I like that we did like 50 minutes of good general advice that can apply to all forms of sealed, because I hope this isn't the last time we do uh, sealed on Arena. So take this, carry it with you, and now we'll hit you on our thoughts uh, about this particular set, the call time set. Uh, so first of all, I want to say I hate you for making me do this. Excellent. That's what I was going for. <laughs> it it wasn't bad. I, I, like I said, I do, I do enjoy sealed. And part of that is because I kind of, I kind of know how to play and it is, it's fun for me to like flex those muscles and stuff. But at the same time, starting from scratch and learning when everyone else has like a big head start is, is kind of frustrating. And I don't know, like standard is pretty decent and I want to work on like all these other constructed formats because of the B and R stuff that just happened. So like, dude, it was tough. It was really tough. It may have come at the worst possible time. I will concede that. I think this is the week where like standard crossed over from acceptable to good in my eyes. I, I think it's actively a good format right now. And you mentioned the BNR stuff that changed every other format. So I understand it was not the optimal time to drag you kicking and screaming into the world of Sealed. But like you, for the most part, I enjoyed it. Uh, I liked collaborating a little bit on some decks together. We, we talked through a bunch of stuff and it just felt like, I don't know, it kind of felt like old times. I was even playing Magic Online. Like I, I was so sick of Arena. I'm like, okay, that's it. Firing up Magic Online. And I just had that feeling of like grinding out sealed pools to prepare for a GP. And it, it felt really good to get back to some sense of normalcy. That part was fun for sure. Uh, I I think part of the problem was that, you know, there wasn't like when, when there was like a sealed PTQ season or like a GP coming up or whatever, and people would be practicing like that. Everyone was kind of on the same page, you know, like everyone was working on the same yeah. thing. And yep, now yep, yep. it's just kind of like, I don't know, like if you've been playing standard, no, I've been playing popper or whatever. It's like, what, why? And you're just like, well, cause nothing else matters. And it's like, okay, I get that, but that's not where my mind went. I'm still grinding standard. You know, it's like, it's tough for everyone to be like, yo, we should be building sealed pools right now. And like, that is where the discourse is. And this tournament focusing on sealed and maybe the set being cool too, kind of helped everyone get on the same page. And I was talking to like, you and Josh Cho, and I'm sure that there were like a lot of other people that could have gotten in on this too, and it, it would have been fun. The lack of commonality of experience in Magic right now is a huge problem, and yes. one that needs to be addressed going forward for competitive scenes to shine again. There needs to be some rudder guiding the ship and making sure we're all interested in the same things at the same time, because it just feels like an absolute free-for-all right now, and uh, it, it can be frustrating, I understand. Yeah, so hate you for making me do this, but it was also dope to just sit and chat about the same thing. And like we we were both there and we both wanted to do it. Yep, for sure. So I don't know if that means like, hey, we should pick like a day to just like jam standard or whatever. I don't know, but uh, I think that could be beneficial. I could see that. Yeah, uh, if, if commonality isn't going to exist, maybe it's on us to create it. So that tracks. So most important thing, for people sitting down and deciding they're going to play in this tournament is I think just having a general understanding of what this format looks like. And at this point, uh, I'm pretty sure you've played more games than me of this limited format. So you might have a, a better sense of that and what's going on. Like you, you so you saw the first deck that I built, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like this, 
double path of the world tree, kind of like five color nonsense card advantage snow thing. And I think I got like all my best cards into my deck and uh, my, my record I think was four and one or five and one before I dropped because I wanted to build another pool. But it was like, I built that pool and I, I was under the assumption that like, man, I still got it because I was able to look at the cards in my pool and kind of figure out what the format was about. Does that does that seem accurate to you? Because I felt great about it. I yeah. I, I mean, I I think you used a good sealed foundation to get to a core strategy very quickly. And to veteran sealed players, this isn't going to blow your mind. But look at your mana, see what you're capable of, and then play all your best cards. That's that's a great starting point for sealed deck. And call time is such that there are really good options for doing so now they're pool dependent i've had pools that just fail on that axis and Same. they're just stupid beatdown pools but like for the most part there is some degree of flexibility in my pools my best pool was a, a five color pool where like one color was constantly coming in and out and just a ton of the uh spell lands that the tapped spell lands all over the mana base and an actual world tree and just a, a really really flexible approach to mana that allowed me to play Frage's retribution and showdown of the scalds and sometimes i splashed the icy manipulator sometimes i didn't but i was just all over the place in terms of colors while being base green and that kind of points me to i think the best starting point you can have is green fix my mana get my good cards in and usually that is with snow rewards yes right because that's yes. that's where a lot of the power lies yeah and it there's just natural overlap there too between uh like glittering frost creating extra snow lands for you and fixing your mana or the o4 bear where you can go get your snow lands like it, it just wraps into this neat package of having access to this good stuff or even like path to the world tree being able to grab your snow covered lands out of your deck all that stuff pushes you in favor of snow it, the funny thing is is if you don't have like the snow enablers or the snow payoffs that probably means that you have a bunch of beatdown cards in your pool right just because of like how the set is constructed sure yeah I, the problem is really where you have both right and you have to decide which of those axes is better and i, I think it's usually this the snow axis Right, because the snow stuff tends to break the rules and it like scales upwards and stuff, right? Like when you're doing snow stuff, you have Sculpture of Winter and whatever the Fertile Ground is. Glittering Frost. Glittering Frost, right? And you're just like, you feel like you're doing busted stuff because your synergies are coming together. And the beatdown stuff is good. The creatures are very good, but you're like, well, I'm I'm attacking and casting Giant Growths, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting too, the process I had to go through to fall comfortably into that point because playing a bunch of glittering frost is a little scary if you're a long time limited player because these effects could also often punish you very hard because we talked about it if resources matter so much and you're playing this thing which is essentially just ramp uh, and you know an extra piece of mana then you're going to fall short on meaningful cards when you get to this end state of the game and you lose because of basically the same reason you would choose to take the draw in a classic format in this format, though, there's just so much built into every card, so many resources, be it the spell lands or be it these incredibly powerful sagas, which can often represent two to three card swings. It, it's all built up for you to be able to recoup your resources. And I'm very comfortable with high glittering frost counts in my deck because it just means I'll cast my Behold the Multiverse quicker and 
get to these huge turns. And that's what I kept coming to as an end state is just huge, huge turns. And every single time you're like, well, there's no way my opponent can possibly respond to something this big. There they were with something equally as impressive. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to forget a lot of what you just said, but there's like three things I want to address. Uh, okay. So glittering frost, I agree is just, it's effectively another land in, in your deck composition for, like when you're talking about like how many spells you have that actually impact the game. But the thing about it is like the mana is so good and that card is a mana fixer. And then you're talking about stuff like Sculptor of Winter being involved too. It just means that if you want to splash for a card advantage card, you absolutely can. Like Showdown of the Scalds, Master Scald, maybe you're not base blue and you're splashing Behold the Multiverse. There's been like double splash stuff for Graven Lore too. Like the fact that the fixing is so good means that you get to play as many card advantage cards as you have in your pool. Yeah, that tracks. And I mean, that, that brings us back to the first step where we were like aware of your mana base and your proclivity for splashing and how cleanly you can do it. The step two is, okay, well, what's the reward of that? What do I get paid on? And bringing back a bunch of card advantage when you're giving it up for something like glittering frost makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So first thing I normally do is look at like bombs and mana fixing, especially for a format like this, because you get to see what your deck is capable of. And I've talked about like that being pretty important, right? And in this case, it's often like, well, my duels are white and I have bound in gold and master scald and like these good artifacts and enchantments. So it's like, okay, you know, that is probably where I'm going to try and start. And then you probably filter in like some good blue and green stuff. And you're like, yeah, this is like a good curve, solid card advantage, whatever. And then you're like, black is, is just really pitiful. It seems Mm. like in the sealed format, it's not great in the set. I agree. Unless you very specifically have like some good menace stuff or berserker stuff, like good beatdown stuff. Right. But feed the serpent is like a card that I ended up splashing in a lot of my decks Maybe that's like my tertiary color. And then I would have like a demon bolt uh, also on the splash because I had enough kind of like quote unquote free sources of red mana that I was able to play it. So that that was how a lot of my deck building went. But then there are times where you're like, well, I opened three snow basic planes and no dual lands. And also the snow payoffs I have are not very good. So like, all right, let's look at my two drops and my removal and my tricks and see where I can go from there. Yeah, I want to point out something. Maybe maybe it's so stupid as to not be worth pointing out because I'm just telling you, I'm basically reading the card to you when I give you this tip, but it was something that was not readily apparent to me. And then when it did click, it was like, oh, well, this is actually obvious and something I should be doing way more often. You get to splash poison the cup like it has one black pip and not two black pips. Right. And it, it took me like half a second to wrap my head around it. And I get that's dumb because it's just obviously what the card does. But it's important. It's important to know that you do have the option to foretell this card. Will that haunt you in some cases? Absolutely. But when you're talking about having access to a splashable murder that can also scry for you, that's a really, really big get. And one of the knocks I have against black is things like Feed the Serpent are double black. And it feels like a lot of the good cards are double black. So it often turns out that black works for me as a splash color. And as I got comfortable with the format, I was 
more inclined to have poison the cup be a huge part of my splash plan where probably the first one or two times i was just like oh well i can't play poison the cup double black and then i'm like wait a second idiot you can very clearly play this card yeah and i mean another thing worth noting about is like you don't lose out on that much because you still get to play it on their turn you know yep which is it's it's kind of weird to me that like demon bolt and poison the cup are both like that uh, it's strange. I, I get it in the case of poison the cup because there is like a real cost, right? Like you, you have to pay the extra mana to get access to yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. Demon bolt is, is very odd though, that it works that way. Right. Like I, I feel like, man, I mean, maybe for power level considerations, like it being a sorcery would have made red a lot weaker. Like I, I know oh, how, yeah. the, how they yeah. used to, you know, rate things in house and stuff like that. So it wouldn't have surprised me if that card was a sorcery at some point, but it is like, uh, part of you know the the double spelling colors and stuff like that. So like I I get it, but it's still just like come on, why? Uh, yeah, a little extra flexibility certainly makes the card better. Uh, probably at like a, a little complexity cost and a little wonkiness cost. But in general, I'm pretty willing to overlook that stuff if it is necessary to make the color on point. Well, let's let's talk about this then. So we have Demon Bolt. Uh, you know, three mana. Uh, four damage, instant, also hits Planeswalkers. You can foretell it if you have nothing else going on. Save it for later. Frostbite, also very good. Instant speed removal. Feed the Serpent is solid. It's it's versatile, instant speed, but like double black. Poison the Cup is obviously very good. Bounding Glory, Iron, was it Iron Verdict? Iron Verdict, yeah. yeah Five damage to a tap creature. Like, that's a lot... And that's like another instant speed removal spell. Like a lot of times the assassinates, obviously the ones that deal damage are usually instant speed, but like assassinate is usually sorcery speed. All like all the removal is good and it's all instant speed and like pretty splashable. So it's pretty easy for your pool to just have a bunch of spot removal. How much do you think that matters? So I think it matters a lot in, in like normal formats, but you brought this up earlier where like, you're, you're talking about like going off with your snow stuff and doing a powerful thing. And like, surely my opponent can't compete with this. And then they do, they do something that's like even more absurd. And this, this sealed format to me has been kind of what I've wanted them to do for a long time was make limited more exciting and more like cube or more like commander where people are able to do like these big splashy effects. And in that sense, like this one delivers it like, you can't really just be like, oh, I'm going to draw your card, draw some cards, kill your creatures, and win with whatever big creature I have, right? Because this format is not like that. People do ridiculous things in this format. Yeah, I think you need a plan to do something noteworthy. Uh, I, I talked about the best sealed deck I had. It, you know, had my Master Scald to buy back my Freja's Retribution and my Showdown of the Scalds, but also had the World Tree, and I activated the world tree a few times in part because I have replicating ring, which produced eight rings at some point. And I just have this incredible amount of mana on the battlefield and all these snowballing effects on top of each other. And the end game just kept getting larger and larger and larger and taking out your one creature. It might matter. It's not irrelevant. Like you certainly need to be able to answer a big flyer or you'll just die. But the really good decks that aren't just trying to end the game immediately, which is an option too. Like run amok is a, a real card. It does a lot of damage. It can end games very quickly. But if you're not trying to end games in that fashion, you have to be able to produce something 
very large that generates multiple cards worth of value and just having a few good removal spells isn't going to prevent your opponent from doing that uh especially if the removal spell doesn't line up in the right way like i think of a card blanking on the name of it it's it's the black white uh angel legend that's like a two four for five mana and if you cast two spells in a turn you get to look at your top three put one in your hand put two in your graveyard like if you are relying on an iron verdict to take care of that you just might find yourself in a lot of trouble and that card can go off and completely bury you You know generate four or five six cards worth of advantage that's very different from here is my baneslayer angel you know, if I, we found another format where Baneslayer Angel is invalidated. Not to say I wouldn't play it. Obviously, it's still a very good sealed card. But like, you get my point. You can do more things than just play your big dumb creature and hope it's enough to carry you. All right, do me a favor. Look at this retribution card. Mm-hmm. Like, look at the actual card. Okay, hold on, pulling it up. Wait, how do I find it if I don't know how to spell the beginning part of the uh, the like? I, I don't know the name that actually starts the card. That's the problem, I guess. Uh, I'm on Mythic and just kind of like scrolling around on the cards. Okay, so you just have to tell me for me to look at it. I had a feeling that was the problem. Yeah, so it's it's F-I-R-J-A. F-I-R-J-A, Ferja, right? Yeah, I, th- I think you you were saying that F-R- Freja, yeah. I was saying, right? Yep. That might actually be another magic character, right? Is there a character called Freja from like- Ice Age or something? Freya, uh, I think Freya is like a mythical thing, and Freya Lise is a magic. Okay, so this is Ferja's Retribution. Thank you. And the angel I'm talking about is Ferja, right? Like that's actual Ferja? Yeah, and I don't know if it's like Fira or whatever. It, like if, uh, if, that's possible, yeah. But, but I, I just read it as Fira. But yeah, you know, after the, the Vorinclex stuff, man, I just wanted yeah, yeah. to, you know. I appreciate that. So however we choose to pronounce this card, Ferja, or what was the other one you used? Fira. Fira. Fira, Judge of Valor is the actual card. That's the two colorless, white, black, black, flying lifelink. Whenever you cast your second spell each turn, look at top three cards of your library, put one in your hand, rest in your graveyard. So I I had a game where, you know, I get to play first. I have Sculptor of Winter. I have Glittering Frost. I have some Snowlands. Love it. I have like a demon bolt, a feed the serpent, behold the multiverse, all commons, by the way. And I'm just like, I'm rolled up. Nothing my opponent can do. My opponent plays Battle for Bredegard, which is the green white saga that like makes a one one, makes a one one, then copies everything, right? Uh huh. And then they play Maskwood Nexus, start okay. making some shapeshifters, and then they Master Scald back the battle. And. They're they're just about to have like ten creatures in play. Yeah, that's pretty explosive. And I'm just like, what the actual hell am I supposed to do against this crap? Because oh, oh my demon bolt and my draw two, right? It's like no, there's <laughs> yeah, just cute. there's just stuff in this format that makes your spot removal look really dumb. And that was like a big eye opener for me. It was like, okay, I need to be able to handle stuff like this because. It wasn't like an uncommon experience. Like that specific combination of cards was uncommon, sure. But even just like my opponent going fearless pop into the 2-1 boast that makes a 2-1 and then boasting on turn three and just like Mm -hmm. having this wide battlefield and I'm like, I have a feed the serpent or whatever. It just, it doesn't get the job done. And then there were certainly like those late game scenarios where people have done like a little bit of making multiple bodies. Uh, Asika's chariot is like another thing that kind of comes to mind. And like, yeah, this is a lot of higher rarity stuff, but 
there's so many of them that exist. Yeah, so many of of the rares, whereas they used to just be big bodies, now they're just single-card snowballs, and you have to build your deck with that in mind. Yeah, and it's, like, all splashable, and the mana's pretty good, and whatever. You know, if you have this card, and if you have an Asika's Chariot in your pool, you can probably play it if you want to. Even, yeah. if, it, even if it is, like, oh, I'm just going to play three forests, whatever. But yeah, I was like, man, I, do, I need, like, that Pyroclasm in my deck, or, like, Cyclone Summoner was just a card that I was suddenly just, like, super happy to have in my pool, because before oh, it was yeah. like okay, yeah, this is a thing, it's pretty good, it's going to end the game, whatever, and now I'm just like, my deck needs something like that. Like, I kind of need this reset or this way to beat multiple bodies or whatever, otherwise I'm just going to lose to decks that are capable of doing stuff like that. Yeah, we talked about a a deck before we came on. It was actually a draft deck, not a sealed deck, but a a lot of the tenets of what you're talking about were present in that, where I was just looking for the largest endgame I could possibly put together, and it did eventually rely on cycler cyclone summoner uh icebreaker kraken was another part of this plan and like a splash nico eris and you talk about all those things together in a deck which had three glittering frosts and you understand the capacity for me to just outscale anything my opponent can theoretically do can you imagine and, can you imagine that sort of deck in like m13 limited no or something? of course of course not it just doesn't track it's completely different and again that's like going back to the play draw thing it's it's not the same form of magic that's being played anymore and i like it and this was a lot of fun and you just have to be willing to accept it and then it should also be changing a lot of your card evaluations and you think about cards that are capable of doing these dramatic snowballs well how do you contain them in constructed magic uh, counter spells are the way you stop these things from even entering the battlefield so i think all the counter spells are way up in value in this set uh and like if there was reasonable discard i would f- say the same about that but there there really isn't right there's no like duress style effect we're looking for here dude it's so like there's there's the mind rot which is a pretty good version of mind rot honestly yeah but, i like the flexibility but there are so many ways to generate cards that it was never like ooh, get my opponent down to two cards and then nab their mm-hmm. their big finisher or whatever oh, and, and i this- used to love that like mind rot and sealed was my jam yeah. i would play so many mind rots and sealed I, and- I i honestly wonder how many matches i won straight up because it's like all right board into mind rots choose to draw first boom yep. game over yeah, it was it was a great strategy back in the day. It's not anymore. And whereas I wanted to love that mind rot, it mostly started getting left out of all of my decks. Occasionally, like a sideboard one might make its way in, but it, it's not it's not good enough for this format. They just have too many resources. Yeah, and all of their cards are busted. So like you mind rot a card away, they just draw another one. And it's like okay, well, you know, you you did find a way to go one for one with a thing, but it definitely does not solve all your problems. No, it does not. You need to do better. So, anyway, this is this is still limited magic. Like, flyers matter, creatures with evasion matter, utility creatures matter. Removal is still very good. I'm still splashing demon bolts. Maybe I'm not bending over backwards to get multiple Feed the Serpents in my deck. Like, removal is good, but the best cards, the cards that you're usually going to lose to, mostly just don't care about it. Agreed. So yeah, it's it's weird. It's not like, oh yeah, four four mana dark banishing because that doesn't handle a lot of the actual threats or you know the go wide strategies, right? Like Demon Bolt A plus 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 plus. It's so cheap, easy to splash, kills basically everything that matters, but I also don't want a deck that just has eight spot removal spells in it. I just don't. Yeah, it's not going to get the job done. I, while I have you on Demon Bolt, I, I want to get your opinion of the Fortel cards. And 
how they've impacted your curve considerations as you've played more of the format? Like early on, uh, again, returning to like the Furge's Retribution deck and my concerns when building that deck was that I basically gave up on the two drop slot. I really didn't have any way to impact the battlefield onto and uh, was mostly confined to foretelling. I think that's fine. I'm pretty comfortable with that. Games go long. I mean, you mentioned the capacity for aggressiveness. It's it's there. It can happen. But the catch-up mechanisms inherent in foretell are mostly good enough. Like you get your one mana demon bolt or, you know, you're able to snipe a key card with saw it coming or you generate resources behold the multiverse. I, I think they're good enough to keep you catching up and you don't need to be overly concerned about your two drop slot especially in sealed. I think this changes a lot when you get into the draft format where twos are way more important, but I think in sealed, you can get away with skipping two for the most part. So I, I agree with you, but what you really need to be doing is like, say you suspend a demon bolt early, you foretell a demon bolt. And then on turn three, uh, like your mana curve is pretty high, right? On turn three, you play a three drop on turn four. You really want to play like a three drop and that demon bolt. If you possibly can, but if you build your deck in such a way where you're like, well, I'm just like foretelling on turn two, it's not that big deal that my curve is high and you, you're you're like, you know, loaded on threes, fours and fives. It's like you're not going to be able to get that value from the demon bolt, you know, getting you tempo back later if you can't also double spell with it in the same turn. So, right. I, yeah, I think if you're skipping two, you you have to go hard on three for that reason. Like you need yeah. to find your double spell turn. Pretty much. Or even if you're just like, well, my three drops are really good at holding the fort or my four drops are really good at holding the fort, but I have a lot of fours and then you can do that the double spell thing on turn five. I think that's acceptable too. Uh, But if you're like, all right, I'm, I I want to play and I'm just going to have a bunch of foretell cards, but then you, you lose the die roll, your opponents beat down. And then your turn three is your turn four is like, oh, I have to demon bolt instead of playing this four drop. And then, you know, your other thing is like, you know, maybe you're foretelling a behold the multiverse or something like that's not it's not great. It's not ideal. Uh, so I guess what I would recommend in a lot of the spots is depending on the speed of your opponent's aggression. Like if you need to demon bolt on four and you can't wait until turn five, look into shaving some of those cards for additional like three mana two threes if you can so that you can actually mm. get that double spell turn earlier. That that makes a lot of sense. I, I just pulled up this deck just because I wanted to look at the curve. And I think it's interesting. Eight, three drops, six, four drops, three, five drops, one, six drops. So you see things really fall off after you hit that three drop spot. If I'm willing to give up the two drop spot, then I need to make some concessions to make sure I'm getting to the place where I can double spell. And also it helps that of the foretell cards, uh, I, I think all of them were foretell a cost of one mana after the foretell. Like they only cost either. I had Iron Verdicts. I had uh, Struggle for Skemfar and uh, Doomscar Oracle. So there, there was a bunch of stuff that was granted you're paying on a future turn, but you're only paying one. And I think that's another important part if you're going to go as far as to basically give up your two drop spot. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of my decks in this format have been like, you have you have the Fertel cards, uh, the, the two drops that you play that are defensive are not like super great. So like you play Sculptor of Winter usually because it's just really good. If you have a snow-covered swamp, it then fixes for Feed the Serpent and stuff like that. Uh, It works really, really good with Glimmering Frost. Glittering Frost? 
Now I don't know. I, I thought it was glittering. It's glittering. We're, we're having a, a Baron Stain Bears moment. Right. Yeah, that card, Fertile Ground. And all like I, I would have good stuff up until like, you know, turn four and then maybe some five drops. But then there would be like this big gap in my curve. And then I would have like a couple things to do with like a bunch of mana. So like you you had the Kraken in, in that draft deck. And that's a card that I, I would have loved to play in basically all of these decks, but I, I never had it. One of my decks had two Path of the World Tree, and it was like that was my my big thing to do on yep, seven. I like that card a lot. And uh, just just any like random seven drop beater that can finish the game. But like between, you know, turn five, six, seven in there, I was mostly trying to double spell to make sure that I was not falling behind and not getting beaten up rather than just like, you know, playing one big clunky card a turn. And part of that is like, well, maybe on turn five, I want to like play a three drop and fertile a card and set up for like a double or triple spell next turn, stuff like that. Like, like, like we've been saying, you don't really run out of resources, right? So it's like yep. on, on these double spell turns, you're, it's not like you're, you know, you have two unspent mana or anything. That's not really happening. So like, I, I think that you can, afford to skip like five mana five five if you can afford to if you don't need the body as like a blocker or a threat or whatever and just focus on spending those turns like killing a thing and gaining some card advantage or like playing a body to the board getting some card advantage and then like when the game starts getting to the later stages then you have like the big stuff that you found with the card drawing that you get to use to start taking over the game yeah the big sevens Uh, that, that, that all tracks all tracks with my experiences uh, how do you feel about aggro and sealed? Like to me, it it's been really difficult to get a good version. You can do it. It is usually my emergency out. It's not. It's not where I want to fall. Uh, I'm sh- I'm sure there's a pool that could push me in the other direction. Just in my experience, not an infinite number of pools, but a good number of pools, enough that I feel like I have a solid grasp on the format. It's rare that it's my A plan. Uh, I've had pools that I thought were just basically disasters where I was able to pull a nice, decent aggro deck out of it. One one of the good things about like having run amok is that it can make a lot of really bad aggro decks pretty good. You can find ways to force a lot of damage with that card. So keep that in mind. I think you need to have some other damage forcing things. Uh, there's like the one mana red equipment that I think does a good job of doing that. If you're cognizant of having access to some reach in your deck, you can make it work. But I'd really advise against making it your a plan unless you have to i think the default for most sealed decks is there are creatures that are meant to attack and block and there are combat tricks and equipment and stuff like that things that are meant to break open games and the the exception is usually like oh look at this like cool snow control deck and this is closer to like a 50 50 Hmm. uh so you're gonna see aggro decks a lot more rare than you would see like these really fancy four color decks uh or you would see aggro decks normally more often in the old formats but this is just like the snow stuff is generally more powerful than the aggro stuff and it's just so prevalent that i think that is generally going to be your first choice and if you have a good aggro pool it's going to be very good because a lot of the snow decks are like slow and cumbersome and they do have their problems and don't necessarily have tools to like gain life and hold off aggression especially if you have a lot of flyers like i've gotten beaten down by an army of flyers a lot of times 
because yeah. I didn't have the tools to defend against those. So if I open like a really good seal pool that's aggressive, I'm going to be excited about it. And it doesn't even have to be good. Like my creature quality doesn't have to be incredible. It, it is really much just like run amux, the the uh, equipment hammer thing. You're kind of turning me on to like Tormentor's Helm as a pretty good card in the archetype. But like if I just have like run amux and a good curve and maybe like some removal for bigger stuff, like I'm, I'm going to be pretty excited about that because I think that that is going to way overperform a very average snow pool. Yeah, you can make it work. Uh, it, it's just how often do those things come together? I mean, it's like, look about look at the creatures that you are often using to put together these aggressive plans. Like the things, the one drops are good. And it's less about the one drops being good and the fact that there aren't those really pushed two and three drops that are super aggressive cards. It's just, they're not present in the set. You, like you think of the three ones with an ability that are present in so many other sets, you don't really get that same feeling here. It's just more grizzly bears and one drops and force them through with combat tricks. So that that's why your pool really has to push you in that direction. Like you can make an aggro deck with just pretty medium bodies if you have one or two things that can really push the tempo, but those things that push the tempo aren't here. So you just have to have the mix of bodies evasion removal and when you do i agree it can it can perform pretty well yeah well i i think with run amok and all the equipments in the format and uh you know flyers just being generally good i think that you can get away with the creatures just being worse than average no that tracks yeah so i i would say that aggro can be good i would i wouldn't be looking at that sort of build as my first thing but when you when you have a viable version of it, I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, I, I probably need to be more open to that idea because uh, uh, these these snow mushes are a lot of fun to play. They and there's are. probably a few other instances I was supposed to be doing something else. They are, and like that that's one of the reasons why I I wanted formats to look more like this than traditional limited is because it is fun and you do a bunch of like weird sideways stuff and your deck looks different every single time. So there's like a lot of replayability there. I think that it maybe goes like a little too far on that end where maybe, maybe, maybe. the aggro stuff isn't quite as represented. Maybe that's, that's different in draft, but this, this to me is like a step in the right direction for making limited exciting. Yeah. The sets felt really good. I, I would say that about most limited sets recently though. I think like limited is actually where design has really shined over the past year or so yeah um so I, i'm not surprised to see them do a good job with another set here uh another thing that is kind of like a strike against aggro is a lot of the stuff that is good offensively is like also pretty good defensively uh so like bergstrager is one that comes to mind where it's like mm -hmm. well if i can play this sort of card in a defensive shell that defensive shell is going to be usually on a higher like power level than an aggressive shell, right? So it's it's good that these cards are flexible, but it's also very strange where like, you know, Demon Bolt's like a really good removal spell, but it's like also just really good in all the control decks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, they're playing both ways. And uh, like something like Master Scald, right? It's like you're supposed to be able to use these Grave Diggers to fight through blockers and have some ability to like go long and master skull definitely does that for the aggro decks, but it also just really helps the control decks where, you know, they, their, their saga dies or, or whatever, and they just get to rebuy it and stuff like that. So it is cool that you're not opening up 
pools that are just two mana three ones and controlling cards, and you just pick whichever side has 23 playables. Like you do actually get to make meaningful decisions in deck building. Yeah, it feels like you're building a real deck the vast majority of the time. Yeah, but it it also means that if if the, the slower decks are stronger in the format on average then you're going to be using the cards like Bergstrider that could be used offensively offensively much less often than you would normally. So it's it's kind of weird, but it, it also means that, you know, if if you have like good red aggro cards and your white or black are not good, it's like, oh, maybe blue red is, is good. And you have like this light snow theme and you get to kind of capitalize on that. You get to play some late game with behold the multiverse and maybe you have like some snow duels and snow synergies that allow you to splash something. So you kind of get like the best of both worlds too. Like I'm sure that there are going to be builds that look like that too. Mm. Yeah. Floating to the middle a little bit, just like all forms of magic. Everything's mid range. Yeah, kind of. And and honestly, like if, if I had a deck that had some snow late game and good removal, but I was able to potentially capitalize on aggressive starts early that's where I'd want to be. I buy that. It's one of the reasons I like Mistwalker so well is that it, it just does every possible game plan you could think of, especially in those colors. Like it's a giant for your giant deck. It could be your evasive threat and your more aggressive deck. It's got the big body on the back end if you need to play defense. Yeah, not not super exciting as a beatdown deck immediately, but like definitely in the later stages of the game, like that thing's going to deal a lot of damage. But yeah, pushing through that three evasive damage late is, I mean, that's your reach when it comes to sealed for the most part. You're not going to get a pure burn spell. Right. And if I, if basically if my deck has not had Mistwalkers or uh, the, the 3 3 for Tell Aven, like you're not, you're not getting a lot of inherent defense against flyers anyway. Like I imagine that thing could just chunk me really hard. Like there, there isn't like a a good giant spider in this set. And yeah, there's the four two who, I mean, like I've, I've grown to appreciate that card exactly because there is no giant spider in this set. Right. You play it because it trades with, with a flyer or like a good ground creature. But like if I had giant spider or a five mana three, five reach or something like that, I would be a lot, happier with my position against decks that are just trying to go wide with flyers. And I think that this is like a better way to go about it. Cause like giant spider sucks, dude. There's no reason that like you should push two, two flyers like wind drakes as a limited archetype. And then you have this common that just shuts you down. Like definitely have spiders that have more power than toughness. I think that that is awesome. It's been fun. It's been fun to play with. You know, when I first saw the card, I was like, oh, this is never making my pools. And then I played a few games and I'm like, no, this is an important card. And whether it's weird and strange on stats or not, you still need to understand its role and understand what it's doing for these green decks. So I haven't it, done it's it. made more and more of my decks. Yeah, same. Before it was like, oh, I'll just side it in if I need a crappy plummet or whatever. And now it's like, I need crappy plummets all the time. Always. I guess I'm starting Always. this. Yep. So Arachniform uh, is like two mana aura. Enchant creature gets plus two, plus two reach and is every creature type. I have not boarded that card in yet, but I anticipate I will at some yeah, point. Yeah, I could see a home for it, sure. And then there's a three mana broken wings, uh, three mana instant, uh, plummet and disenchant. So destroy target artifact, enchantment, or creature with flying. Definitely main deckable and- 100%. Like not only main deckable, but a very good main deck card, I believe. Yeah, so I, I guess we can like kind of go into like specific cards at this point. Like Sure. Masked Vandal is a card where I was like, well, it seems like there's a lot of artifacts and enchantments, and this is a shapeshifter, and I have a glimpse, whatever the giant 
dig through time is or whatever. So it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be pretty happy starting this. And then the more I played, I was like, God, I want two of this card or I want yep. like a grave digger to get this back or something. And then one of my opponents cast broken wings against me and I hadn't had it in any of my pools so far. And it's just like, God, I would play like as many of that card as possible. It's really, really good. I mean, the sagas are so important in this set. There's just fine artifacts and enchantments all over the place. And all these decks need some way to account for these big flyers. So it, it, it's a slam dunk. I, I don't know what the limit is as to how many I would play, but you can get a few in your deck pretty happily. I'm, I'm happy with two. I'm happy with two broken wings or two mass vandals or one and one or whatever. And then if I had a third, I would also be very happy about that. You know? Yeah. The, the changeling ability is so important to so many things you do. And uh, turning on those synergies is just uh, another feather in Mass Vandal's cap. Every single changeling has found some utility for me in often odd ways. Uh, and like, do you have any examples of that? Because it's like I've just uh, I've just been doing the normal stuff. It's like oh, I'll play a Realm Walker and like, what do I name? You have Glimpse the Cosmos that you kind of get to free roll. But like, is there anything? Glimpse else is a huge one. The I activated the World Tree and just got all the changelings out of my deck once. Okay, like that yeah. came up. That's cool. Uh, the flame tongue Kavu basalt something three colorless one red four two ravager. that does damage equal ravager. Uh, I mean that really only kicks into high gear when you're playing it with changelings. I think changeling is a pretty important part of the equation there. But once you have a few, it can take out almost anything. Uh, just just long hits. Uh, Ferger's retribution is another one that I got paid really hard on my changelings once. So just like weird payoffs all across the board and and they come up if you're keeping your eye out for them you'll you'll find them there's good stuff there yeah bears of Liara is another one where like that that's a rare you know but and it says shapeshifter on the card right but like yep. that's another one where it could like definitely pay you off oh yeah so yeah the the changelings are super nice and there are enough things that care about creature type where it's like well do i want to play this this fourth changeling and usually the answer is yes because it's worth it so like more right of the frost. This is a five mana Simic legendary clone clones, any permanent you have. And if it's a creature, it gets two plus one plus one counters. And like, I've kind of been describing a lot of the snow decks are like not super heavy on creatures. And I didn't have a lot of like great things to copy with this. And I had, I had two in my pool. I ended up only playing one, but it was like, there were enough things that I wanted to clone and like it being a shapeshifter mattered enough mm -hmm. where it's just like, yeah, okay, I guess this is fine. And then uh, what's, what's the two mana bird, the looter bird. Oh, Pilfering Hawk. Say, yeah, that sounds right. Whereas like I had one of those in my snow deck and I was getting beaten down by two, two flyers a lot. I ended up cloning that thing a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I found windows for Moretta the Frost to be very good. I've cloned lands before to get to my coma. Um, so there's enough things where I am probably playing any number of that card. I think it's just good enough. And like the fact that it gets those counters means if you are just cloning your two drop or your three drop, you're very happy to do that. You're getting a really good return, especially when its creature type gets upgraded to Changeling. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of like Turn Timber Symbiosis where it feels bad that you're spending seven mana in a, a deck where you mostly have like smaller creatures. So like if you, if you kind of miss and hit something small, it's like, Oh yeah, but it gets three counters, you know? So like you have this six, six Kazandu mammoth. So like basically yeah. no matter what, even if you're cloning a smaller thing, it still feels like you're getting paid. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a, a great card and you should always play it or whatever, but I, I wasn't super disappointed with the one. 
when I was playing one copy. Two definitely would have been overkill. But uh, dude, you had a coma. Must be nice, man. What is that like? Well, you know, we all we all get free wins every now and then. Actually, I got it uh, stomped when I am. I've only played one game with this sealed deck, I think. But uh, I, it, just as soon as I played it, it got stomped before it could even make its its three three. Well, dude, maybe you should have had that more right in play of something else. It could have been a serpent. I guess so. I guess so. Could have I, played sure, around sure it. I, sure, I punted. I'm sure you. I'm sure you had time too, right? No, I, I actually my draw just didn't. I like drew land after land after land after land, and my only play was to like ramp to this coma. Oh, okay. Well, awkward, but fair enough. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, so when we're talking about the the demon bolt thing. One of the things I wanted to bring up was that a lot of my decks have not been, you know, like you start with green because you have a bunch of the snow stuff. You have Sculptor of Winter, the Fertile Ground, the Bear maybe. Like you have a lot of reasons to be green as like your main snow color. And a lot of the time that's paired with blue because you have like some flyers, some card advantage. Sometimes it's like, well, maybe your base green, black for whatever reason. Maybe you have like two Feed the Serpents and like those are the cards that help fill your curve. But it's been very rare where I've been like, yeah, I'm green and I'm pairing that with white. And a lot of the time white has been my splash color. But like I think the one card, given how like all the games have played out, that I would be really happy leaning in the green white direction is Doomscar Oracle. And it's like part of part of like the Demon Bolt discussion that we had where it's like this thing that kind of like allows you to gain tempo back. Mm-hmm. And the life gain is so huge, man, because if you can't kill a flyer, if you can't stabilize behind a giant spider or a big flyer yourself, having some life gain to kind of help you race these things is is the way you want to go about doing it. I, I like life gain a lot in this format. Uh, you do find yourself in odd racing scenarios, I would say. It's not quite the my two twos are attacking and your two twos are attacking and we'll see who comes out on top. But the, there are strange races that occur, even like the two mana, two two lifelink in white. I've been very happy with that card in a bunch of decks, more so than I would be with a typical uh, two mana, two, two lifelinker, just because the swings you're able to create with that card via run amok or, you know, equipment, whatever you're doing with it, you can find ways to make it more impactful. Um, And and that comes up over and over for me. So I I buy into what you're saying. I, I do think there is space for these life swings to be a really meaningful part of your games. One of my favorite sneaky things to do with like a grizzly bear lifelinker is use it to get in a decent amount of damage, even though that that's not your main game plan, which just means that, you know, then it's probably going to be easier to kill your opponent with flyers later. It gives you the option to enter into racing situations if you want to, but, but also just like the extra life gain you get translates into more draw steps later. So like when you have two mana, two, two lifelinker and a deck that has like an absurd top end. It's so good, man. I might play more child of nights than anyone else when it comes to limited formats. I I just think there's space for that card to contribute in ways that go beyond its body. Yeah, no, I, I did that a lot too. And it's like having that also is, is one of the things that will help you draw first in a lot of instances, because you have this cheap thing that trades with their cheap thing and it gives you a little bit of a life buffer. So if you think that your deck needs to draw first for whatever reason, then you have another card that kind of like it helps enable you to do that. Yeah, good point. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't look for that as my reason to draw first, I, but you're right that it it fills the curve for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't either, but I'm I, you know, just for like completionist sake, like I do want to bring that up where it's like it's so that happened a lot more with Child of Night in your deck, right? Where it's like you yeah. just don't care 
about drawing first at that point because you have this thing that blocks and trades and gains you a little bit of life and means that even when you're on the draw, you're not under that much pressure. And this this accomplishes the same thing. Again, I definitely feel like you're probably better off playing first. Uh, I mean, think think about like this card on the play. Like you probably get to attack on 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 turn two against a lot of opponents, and then maybe you get to attack on turn three, and then you're doing the thing that I said, where it's like, well, now you have this life buffer that's going to translate into an extra draw step almost certainly, and then that's going to help you too. So like it it definitely gives you a reason to like want to play first. Also, it also forces them into less than optimal blocks. Like in some cases where you might just be like, okay, I let this 2-2 go because I'm not going to get blown out by run amok. You might be like, okay, if I let this 2-2 hit again and it's now created a 12-point life gap between us, then there's no way I can race back into this game. So I just have to make this block here. And it's, it's one of those things where pressure accumulates. And especially in limited formats, really good limited players know how to use life totals and the threat of persistent decrease in life total to push their opponent into bad decisions, especially when it comes to playing aggressive decks. And I, I think the 2-2 lifelinker does a great job of that. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the Icy Manipulator too. Let me bring up that card name. This is another card that I, I've not done a ton of sealed yet, so I've not been fortunate enough to open this in a pool that can play it. Ice Bind Pillar. 2U, Snow Artifact, Snow, Tap, Tap Target Artifact or Creature. I think this card is phenomenal, but it's always phenomenal, right? So me saying that, like th- this effect being good and sealed isn't all that interesting. I-, I think it's better here though than it usually is because you find windows to, if things are going to scale throughout the game, if things are going to get progressively larger, then you want your removal spell to do the same. You play your Iron Verdict or whatever, it's killed one thing, that's it. You play this card and it's accounted for early pressure. It's found windows for you to sneak through damage. Uh, I played a game the other night with the squirrel and this card and I was just using it to draw cards left and right. It is another snowball effect, which is interesting, it being an ice bind pillar and all, but uh, it, it has the capacity to push you in both directions and is the type of removal that really is incentivized in this format because it does upgrade so well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, th- there are definitely games where you need to demon bolt their their 4-4 or something. And then later they play like, you know, two turns later you play a 5-5. So like now the 4-4 was covered, but you had to kill it so that you weren't under a bunch of pressure. And then they play like their 6-6 or whatever. And like, this is just a thing that, that scales up really well. Uh, it is mana intensive, but like I said, I think that, you know, turns 5-6-7, like, you do try and like double, triple spell a lot of the time because you want to have like not necessarily a super low mana curve, but Fortel helps you spread the mana out a lot so you can do multiple things on those turns. And this is a flexibility, a lot of flexibility. Yeah. And this is another one of those things that like kind of like weaves in there and like lets you spend extra mana if you want to. And if you have to keep it up because you're getting killed by a flyer or something, it's it's super low opportunity cost to do that. Yeah, I don't know that I would like stack multiples of these in my deck, but I am I am very happy to have one all the time. I think I would, but then you have to be really conscious of your curve where, you know, maybe snow count too. I mean, that yeah. that's a real thing. No, that's that's true too. But yeah, you can't necessarily start putting like a bunch of 7 and 8 mana cards because you won't be able to like hold open icy and play that card. 
Uh, so maybe you're just like, well, I just have to play a six drop instead of this like really powerful eight drop. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting consideration. Uh, what else you got for me? I mentioned most of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, Disdainful Stroke, very main deckable. It's the same principle as all the other counter spells. If these are bombs and you want to stop them ahead of time, Disdainful Stroke does a nice job of it. Also frees up some of your mana to do like your two spell thing. So like that card a lot. Where do you fall on the vehicles in this set? I I have found uses for them. I mean, certainly like a Seeker's Chariot, whatever. We know that's a bomb. That's, but I'm that's talking about, not a vehicle. That's a fake vehicle. I'm talking about the other nonsense ones, things like uh, Raiders Carve or really any of them outside of the super bomb ones. Have you been putting these in your decks often? Do you find specific uses for them? What's your opinion on them? Omen Keel's so busted, dude. Again, a fake vehicle, but... <laughs> Man, was that card nice for me, even in a deck with a low creature count. But uh, the the Raiders thing and the Longboat, they're both reasonably statted for vehicles, man. They're, it feels that way. They're not that bad. I think that there is a lot of tension between equipment and vehicles where, say you have a vehicle and you have two creatures and every turn you want to like play a new creature and crew the vehicle and attack – or you only have like one creature in a vehicle and you, you'd much rather have a second creature in that scenario than an equipment. So trying to put like a bunch of vehicles and like tormentors homes and stuff like that into your deck is, is really awkward and there's a lot of tension there. So you have to kind of figure out what would actually be better for your deck. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily super easy, but I think, if you're like, well, I have this deck that has a bunch of equipment and some run amucks or, you know, removal, all of these spells, I think it's very low risk to put one solid vehicle in your deck. But if you don't have a bunch of the tricks or the equipment, then it's like, yeah, play two or three vehicles, man. Like they're all, they're all just like pretty good. I think the reason the vehicles work in this format is the thing I mentioned earlier, where a lot of the aggressive decks are building their aggression through small bodies, like really small bodies, one drops, two drops that aren't really overstated. And when those get outclassed by something larger, you need you can't let them go completely dead. And the vehicles do a good job of converting them into a resource that can still have some impact as the game goes along. And that's why I found homes for a lot of these vehicles. Uh, I'm not over the moon about any of them, but very happy to play them when they fit. So equipment, icy or not IC equipment vehicles and the, the pump spells all do a pretty Similar good job things. of, of making those creatures not go dead. Right. Yep. It just so happens that all of those things don't necessarily have synergy with each other. And there's also a lot of boast cards and like some of those boast cards are either mana intensive or there's like the three, two that you exile the top card and you can play it and stuff where it's like, that's kind of like backwards mana intensive. Mm. And you can't necessarily activate all of your boast cards on the same turn. So then, yeah, you have things like multiple fearless pups, like crewing vehicles or whatever. And then you have your boast tapper that you're spending your mana on. So makes sense. There's, there's like a lot of weird synergy here. And I like how the aggressive cards were designed in this set. It, it just so happens that again, equipment vehicles don't necessarily go great together in big, big numbers, but like you have a lot of ways to make your crappy creatures actually do something, which is nice. Yeah, be conscious of that if you're forced into the aggressive setups. Make sure you're not discounting these options out of hand. Yeah, like I, I've seen a lot of games in Limited, not necessarily in this format, but like other formats too, where 
you know, your opponent has like a trick in their hand and equipment and a vehicle and they draw a creature and they're just like, uh, okay, like I don't even really know what to do with this thing, right? Or just like yeah. you then kill their creature and they go back to having a bunch of dead cards. So yeah, be mindful of that. Uh, with all of the vehicles and equipment and everything, like token makers end up being pretty good, of course, or anything anything that generates card advantage, multiple bodies really. Mm, uh, now that you mentioned that, I, I love these equipments that come with a creature attached to them. I, yes. I think they're all absolute bombs, uh, would play them, it, no question. They all have absolutely fine stats and a lot of versatility that I really love. Yeah, I guess the the green equipment that grants reach is like the giant spider equivalent, right? Yeah, and yeah, that's that's a good point. That is That is a card that I've been desperate for in just so many of my decks, but also like the toughness pumping is really nice, and mm-hmm. it, with a card like that, you get to do stuff like attack and then move it on to something else to actually block and like help you remain kind of like stable in these racing situations and stuff. But yeah, like the red one is just absurdly good. The giant one is is fine. I don't think it's busted or anything, but they they are all really nice. Where it's like they have this cheap cost if you want to just play them as an equipment, but it's another form of kicker, man. As the game goes longer, yeah, they scale up super nice, and, and that's I, important for sealed. Like the white one in sealed is just an absolute bomb. It can break games open. Six five flyer is tremendous. Right, it's just huge, and it doesn't have to be that. It can be just your two one equipment, and I think it's acceptable as that. So uh, don't sleep on these cards. Yeah, the the white one and the red one are are two good examples too of why spot removal matters less in this format. Be- mm, because you're like, oh wow, kill your your four four creature, and then they're just like, all right, well now all my creatures are Sarah Angels or whatever. You're just like, well okay, I'm dead. You know, there's yeah. there's no real way you can deal out uh, deal with that outside of having like an actual disenchant, which is just another reason why the disenchants end up being like pretty good against everyone. Like something like disdainful stroke, I think is really good. And I, I realized really quickly that I should be playing it more often than I was, but it's it's a card that is maybe potentially dead against aggro, or maybe they're beating you down. You need to spend mana. You don't have the luxury of keeping two mana up. Obviously, there are a lot of foretell cards that help with that, which is really nice. But in the case of like the disenchants, the aggro decks, like their ways to push through are usually artifacts and enchantments. So they're almost always going to yep. be live against everyone. Yeah, good point. Keep going. Keep going. What else we got? What else you want to talk about? I think I have crossed off most of the stuff I wanted to get your input on. I don't know, man. You said I dragged you into this format, but as we had this conversation, it sounds suspiciously like you've enjoyed your time with Call Time Sealed. No. Okay. So that's the thing, dude, is I like the puzzle. I like thinking about it. I actually hate playing the games in this format. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I get it. They can be unwieldy. Uh, they get bogged down occasionally. And especially like your deck can kind of, you, kind of leave you at the mercy of a bogged down game where it's really difficult to push through and battlefields just get out of control. So so, so part of it was learning these lessons, right? Where I'm just like, oh, look at me with my Behold the Multiverses and my Feed the Serpents and like my good mana base and whatever. And then my opponent's like, oh, my Fortel card is Starnheim Unleashed. Or mm. the the battle for Bredegard game, or just, you know the Sarah Angel equipment. It's just like God, like this just sucks, man. And part of it is like learning those lessons. Like now I, I know those lessons. I can better build around trying to beat those things and those game states, and that's good. But at the time, playing those games was just super frustrating because everyone's doing like these busted things and. 
that was not what I was expecting was going to happen. It's a surprise. It's different. Uh, but I, I have found it interesting. I have mostly enjoyed my games besides the rare ones that just get bogged down in nonsense, but they mostly remained dynamic through many turns and uh, there were still decisions to be made, but not the type of decisions that are like finicky it, decisions. Like what am I playing towards? What's my right. long-term goal? And like I've, I've said many times, that's what I love about magic. So I, I have very much been happy to play this sealed format uh, going to be happy to collect my $2,000 come ah, Sunday. I'll, and, I'll take uh, the field. Can I bet against? <laughs> uh, no, that's probably a smart bet. I, I like that. There's but, just, there, there's you know, also the, the thing where you might just sleep in or like. Oh, absolutely. You're, 100%. You're finally getting to bed at 6 a.m. or whatever. Yeah, uh, very possible. But I, I do think I'll play uh, at least one or two shots in this open, though. And I'm, I'm excited about it in a way that I wasn't for the last few constructed opens. So I'm glad they took this chance. So I played a lot of games where I was like, okay, Sculptor of Winter. Now I play my Shimmer Veil thing and have to figure out what color to name. Play Path of the World Tree. I have to figure out like what basic land type to get. And I'm like building towards maybe like activating that. Uh, so I have to, you know you have to make all these like careful decisions about like how to actually sequence your mana and get all the right colors into play and whatever. Sometimes you just have the the glittering frost and sculptor and it just doesn't matter. But there were a lot of like small things like that where I was like, all right, I have one black, but I also, I don't have a feed the serpent yet and I don't have a demon bolt yet. So like, you know, which other land do I get? Blah, blah, blah. Those, those sorts of things were fun. And Figuring out like, okay, can I commit to just like beholding the multiverse this turn and ensuring that I can double spell next turn? Or do I have to like do something that's kind of tempo negative, but helps me stabilize a little bit more? Like those were cool. Those decisions were cool. But then my opponent like draws Karthus or whatever the card is, the red black thing that like makes you attack and deals you a million damage. And it's just like, all right, that didn't matter. Or, like they start on high mute. It's like, okay, all the stuff I did didn't matter. You know, like that aspect is frustrating, but definitely like the first five turns, man, it's money. It's great. Uh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed your your first five turns. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I mean, look, nothing nothing is perfect right now, but this feels like a, a step in a new and interesting direction. So I'm going to give her credit. Okay. Last, last thing, last thing too, is like, I I know that this goes toward the format feeling like, you know, more dynamic, more explosive, like behold the multiverse at common is wild, really, really powerful. And it, it just changes the format so much because so many people have access to so much card advantage. This thing is splashable. It's not even like super tempo negative. Like, you know, what if glimmer of genius was common and whatever, you know, what would that have done to the format? So it's, it's really weird to me that that is a conscious choice, but I think that it is the backbone for a lot of these decks and really does enable you to do the cool stuff like that. So it's like, okay, cool. But like a lot of the rarities in the set are kind of frustrating where like, you know, the commons feel like uncommons pretty close to rares. A lot of the uncommons feel like rares and then just stuff like avalanche caller too, where it's like, obviously there are very specific decks that this is good in very specific scenarios where it's good. It could just get killed early, um, whatever. But like one of the games that I'm complaining about, that was like the Starnheim game where my opponents like make four angels. And 
I was at 30 or something and like had a thing to block, took a hit, spent my turn drawing some cards, gained some more life off something. Maybe it was like Path of the World Tree, Bless Behold or whatever. And I found Avalanche Caller and was like, oh, my opponent also had a bunch of stuff. I had a bunch of stuff. And I was like, okay, play Avalanche Caller, attack you with five lands and like some other four fours or whatever. And just like they had, they had to chomp a bunch. They tried to hit me back. And then on my turn, like my my replicator ring went off. <laughs> so then okay. so then I could avalanche caller for days, right? And I was just like, this game is stupid. It, but it, okay, it is. It's stupid. I'm not trying to defend it. But as one instance in your experience no, with call time, no, 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 no. isn't it a good story? No, because that sort of crap happened in almost every match. <laughs> okay. Whenever yeah. like my opponent played an avalanche caller, I'm like, I'm dead. And I had avalanche caller in multiple sealed decks, and it was the same thing. It's like, play it, attack you for eight, play it, like, attack you for 20 or whatever. And it's just like, what are you doing? Why are so they, I guess why if are take, they four if take, Why are they four fours? Why do they have haste? Like, I get why they nothing else away from this cast. Play your avalanche caller. I get, I get why they have haste because it would be really awkward to activate your wrong snow land or whatever. Right, right. But it's still, that is why. Like, I've had it come up where, like, I drew a snow land to, like, get the extra attacker for lethal or whatever. And it's like, that's not the intended functionality. It, it's not. But, uh, yeah, avalanche caller. Hell of a magic card. But God, man. Yeah, that, that card is messed up. Like, you want to talk about late games? My opponents were doing some dumb stuff, and then I was just like, oh, I'll just fireball you every turn. Man, I I have not had much exposure to Avalanche Caller. I don't know if I'm missing out or I'm lucky. I don't know. If you like cheesing people out of games. Well, that's the only way I win games of magic. Of course I like that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's dude, it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. Anyway, I hope I hope that. For people playing in the tournament this weekend, that this is helpful. Uh, I really hope that you know we we are able to describe the format and describe sealed and stuff like that in a way that is helpful. It is it's always concerning to me, like doing a podcast for a, a game like Magic that is very visual, and I'm I'm definitely like a visual learner, right? So I'm not sure that I could even listen to something like this and take away a lot of a lot from it. But I hope that there are people out there that this is helpful for. And I also hope that people are not upset that we're not talking about constructed. I know that standard's cool. There's a lot of stuff going on, but like, you know, we next do, week we'll be back. Yeah. Next back week. next week for sure. And I don't know. I just, I, I really hope that people enjoy this episode and are able to take some stuff away from it. And that we, we did a good job presenting it too, because this is not something that we get to practice week in and week out too. I think that we did a good job, but you know, some feedback on this would be nice. We'd really appreciate it. Absolutely. Always love to hear from our listeners and let us know what we can do better for you. We're very happy to adapt and learn from doing these new types of episodes. That's game. Good luck.